Hey guys, it's Tanner, host of Hitchhiker's Guide to Hyrule. Thanks so much for coming out to listen to our most recent episode. We really couldn't do this without you. I wanted to let you know that if you ever want to comment on any of our episodes or get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at WeTalkMedia and just shoot us a DM. We want to hear from you guys, so find us on Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. We've also got a lot of other content from We Talk Media that we're excited to share with everybody, so check us out. And now, on to this week's episode. Before time began, before spirits and life existed, three golden goddesses descended upon the chaos that was Hyrule. Din, the goddess of power. Nehru, the goddess of wisdom. Aurore, the goddess of courage. Din, with her strong, flaming arms, she cultivated the land and created the red earth. Nehru poured her wisdom onto the earth and gave the spirit of law to the world. Aurore, with her rich soul, produced all life forms which would uphold the law. The three great goddesses, their labors completed, departed for the heavens, and golden sacred triangles remained at the point where the goddesses left the world. Since then, the sacred triangles have become the basis of our world's providence and the resting place of the Triangles has become the Sacred Realm. Welcome back, Hitchhikers. Thanks for being here. This is Hitchhiker's Guide to Hyrule, where we talk about everything around the Legend of Zelda series. Could be gameplay, history, personal experiences, and today we're going to be talking about lore, but we'll get into that in a minute. I'm your host, Tanner Short, and my goal in this podcast is to help all of you become expert explorers in the mystical land of Hyrule, one of my absolute favorite places. So like I said, today is our first lore cast, meaning that we're going to be talking about the lore behind the Legend of Zelda series. So this is a little bit more intense of a podcast for those of you who haven't played so much of the Legend of Zelda series or video games in general. But I do want to give you a little bit of an introduction to what lore is if you happen to be a new gamer that's listening to this episode. So lore is a collection of knowledge or traditions from a particular group. So take a fantasy fandom like Zelda. The lore would be knowledge about the magic of Hyrule and the traditions of the royal family, how the games are connected and the histories of the civilizations within each game. Basically, lore is the building blocks of the fantasy universe behind Zelda. And I think Zelda is a great source of lore for people that love getting into the nitty-gritty details of a series because there's so many games, and each game comes with its own background, its own history, its own backstory, characters, world, and its own heroes and villains. So there's a vast legendarium of games and stories that allows us to create this huge lore structure. And there are some truly incredible resources that Nintendo has created to help us weave together the lore of the Legend of Zelda series. And the first of those resources is Hyrule Historia. Okay, Hyrule Historia was released in 2013 as a collection of lore from the first 11 or so titles. Basically from 1986 to 2011. 
So they created an official timeline that linked all the games that had been created, and they also wrote an in-depth history of the people of Hyrule throughout that timeline. Then, in 2017, they released the Zelda Encyclopedia, which was a supplement to Hyrule Historia. It gave a more in-depth timeline, and it also gave all the lore behind every detail you could think of with Legend of Zelda. It talks about the main lore elements, like the Triforce, Link, Zelda, the Royal Family, Hyrule... And then it goes into locations and worlds, enemies, creatures, animals, civilizations, items, you name it, it's probably in there. So those are two uh, sources that have been officially sponsored by Nintendo. But there's also Zelda Universe, an online forum for Zelda fans. There's Reddit, the infinite well of knowledge of fans all over the world. But at the end of the day... You've got all the games that have been produced in the Zelda series, and that is the best way to get involved in the lore of the series. So, I'm going to do that with Ocarina of Time today. Hope you enjoy it. Ocarina of Time starts out with the Great Deku Tree revealing to Link the myth of the creation story of Hyrule. And Timmy gave that narration at the beginning of this episode, which I'm really appreciative of. And within it, we learn that there are three goddesses who put their powers together to create Hyrule. Din is able to create the raw land and the red earth. Nehru is able to create the skies and the lights. And Furore is able to populate the world with life. When they depart the world, the point at which they depart into the heavens leaves behind three golden triangles, which is the Triforce. And the Triforce is most certainly the epicenter of all the lore in The Legend of Zelda. The Triforce is essentially their power that's left behind for anyone to use. And the only criteria or stipulation behind its use is that the user has a balanced heart between the three virtues of courage, wisdom, and power. Now Link doesn't learn all this up front. What he learns is that the Triforce was left behind and the royal family has protected it. Later, when he encounters Zelda in Act 2, she reveals to him that the Triforce can grant the user any wish of their heart. In fact, most specifically, the deepest desire of their heart. And her fear is that Ganondorf, the leader of the Gerudo of Thieves, intends to break in and use the Triforce to rule Hyrule. So here we have our first example of how lore drives a series or drives the story. Because we have a story that gamers experience as they play the game, but we need building blocks that help the story actually move forward. So now we have a conflict. Ganondorf wants to rule Hyrule. How does he want to do that? Well, Zelda theorizes that he wants to break into the sacred realm and steal the Triforce. So that introduces some specific questions, like how does he use the Triforce to rule Hyrule? Well, lore answers that question because as we study the lore of the Triforce, we learn that the Triforce is the power of the goddesses that's left behind. That means it has the power to create matter, has the power to create order and dominion, has the power to create life forms. And so anyone who wants to use that power simply approaches it and makes a wish, and it has the potential energy to make that wish possible. Sort of like Marvel's Infinity Stones. It's the combination of all the different powers that these stones have that make Thanos' wish possible. The Triforce is the same thing. The combination of the powers of the three goddesses makes any wish possible. But we learn that they must have a balanced heart, and Link learns this in Act 3, when Sheik slash Zelda reveals 
that unless the user is worthy and has a balanced heart, the Triforce will split into three parts and each of those three parts will bestow themselves onto one who is most representing that virtue. So the Lord drives the conflict. As the story progresses, Link collects the three spiritual stones that act as a magical key to opening the door of time. And there he finds the Master Sword, the Blade of Evil's Bane. And that is a whole nother epicenter of lore in the Legend of Zelda series because that is the sword that was created by the goddesses to repel evil and fight back those who wish to corrupt the Triforce. Now, we only see the Master Sword in the mainstream of the story of Legend of Zelda. I like to call it the spine of the series. So those flagship games like Ocarina of Time, A Link to the Past, Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, Skyward Sword, Breath of the Wild. So in other games that aren't necessarily in Hyrule, there are other blades that have similar powers or similar magic behind them. But for the most part, the Master Sword is the sword that is created specifically to drive back evil. The lore behind the Master Sword is pretty incredible. And so the Master Sword was originally forged as the Goddess Sword by the Goddess Hylia, who is not one of the three goddesses. Rather, she's a goddess of lesser degree that is tasked with protecting Hyrule after the three great goddesses depart. So if anyone's familiar with the Lord of the Rings theology, I guess, you would know that in the Silmarillion, we learn the story of the, of the Valar, the highest degree of life forms that Iluvatar has created. And then right below them, there's the Maiar, who are their servants. They basically help the Valar accomplish their righteous purposes. So it's similar, I think. You have the high goddesses, the three great goddesses that create Hyrule and leave behind the Triforce. And then there is their servant, Hylia, who agrees to protect it. Well, Hylia uses some of that power as a goddess to create the goddess sword and drive back the demon emperor demise and seal him away. But her power isn't sufficient, basically. There is a need for the power of the great goddesses in order to drive back demise when he returns in Skyward Sword. So Link is tasked with going around Hyrule and finding three sacred flames that he can use to infuse the Master Sword and forge it into the Blade of Evil's Bane. And it's suspected that these flames were left behind by the three goddesses themselves. Since the three goddesses were responsible for creation, they likely created these flames. So here we know that the Master Sword is imbued with incredibly divine power. When Link pulls the Master Sword in Ocarina of Time, he vanishes. His body is swept away into a place known as the Sacred Realm, and he wakes up seven years later and meets Raru, a sage who built the Temple of Time as a protection to the Sacred Realm. Tying together the Master Sword and the Triforce, we learn that the Master Sword is actually the key to gaining access to the Sacred Realm, and it has been that way from the very beginning. Link in Skyward Sword has to endure three brutal trials in the Silent Realm, and these are trials meant to test him and temper him as a warrior as well as give him clues to temper the Master Sword by finding these eternal flames. But the Silent Realm is a place that's not physically located in Hyrule. It's kind of like an alternate dimension. He is guided to the marked location of the Silent Realm, and then he has to drive his sword into the earth. And from there, his body is disassembled and warped away, and it reassembles in this alternate or flipped universe that looks like Hyrule but isn't. Interestingly, when he enters the Sky Keep, where the Triforce has been hidden for thousands of years, it's a similar physical structure. 
He goes around and fights monsters in order to find these marked locations where he has to drive his sword into the earth and be disassembled and warped and reassembled in this space where the Triforce is actually physically located. So these portals, I believe, are taking him to the sacred realm where the Triforce is located at the very beginning of the timeline. And then he assembles it and he's able to make his wish and, and destroy Demise. Well, Rauru, who built the Temple of Time, likely built it over one of these portals or entrances into the sacred realm. And we can see that because in order for Link to travel through time, he has to drive or remove the Master Sword from the pedestal of time. So the physics work very similar to Skyward Sword. So we see how the lore is connected to how the Master Sword acts as the key to the Triforce, how the Triforce is collected and used, and the kind of power that it possesses. So what's essential to know is that he can use the Master Sword to travel back and forward through time to complete his quest, and that eventually he can use it to awaken the Seven Sages and receive their help in defeating Ganondorf. After Ganondorf has achieved the Triforce of Power because he himself was unworthy, so the Triforce separated into three parts. He most represented the virtue of power, so he was left with the Triforce of Power, which gave him immense strength and magical ability to actually overthrow the Kingdom of Hyrule himself by force. So in order to stop Ganondorf, it's revealed to Link through Rauru, the Sage of Light, that he needs to awaken the Seven Sages because only they can open the door to seal Ganon away with the Triforce of Power. So there introduces a question of lore. Who are the Seven Sages and why do they have power that is able to seal back the Triforce of Power? So we have a page in Zelda Encyclopedia, it's page 24, that is dedicated specifically to explaining the Sacred Realm and the Sages throughout time. From it we learn that the Sages are awakened in every age in which the Triforce needs to be protected, or when evil is trying to obtain the Triforce. The Goddesses will awake those who are called to be Sages, and they will rise to join their forces with the hero and with the princess reincarnation of Hylia to drive back evil. And this is something that we find the goddesses will do frequently throughout the Zelda series. For example, in Twilight Princess, we have the Light Spirits, and they protect vessels of light that keep off the powers of the Twilight Realm. And so they are beings that are created by the goddesses to protect the realm from whatever the threat happens to be at the time. Another example could be the Locomo in Spirit Tracks, although the encyclopedia here does say that the Locomo could be considered sages, but... Again, they are beings that were created to specifically to ward off the evil of that particular era. Continuing on page 25, Zelda Encyclopedia says, In eras when the seven sages awake to fight evil, there are also eras when, within the seven, there are six sages associated with particular symbols, and Zelda is the seventh sage and their leader. Ocarina of Time makes this very clear. You awaken the six sages who each give you a medallion, and this medallion has a symbol that is tracked throughout all of the Zelda timeline. These symbols can be traced back to Skyward Sword. At the very end of the game, when you go back in time to face Demise, you enter what is called the Temple of Hylia. This is a temple that was built probably very soon after, or even before, the Triforce was sent into the air in the Skykeep. But this temple's ancient, and on the ceiling you can see the symbols that are on the medallions that the sages give Link 
in Ocarina of Time hundreds of years later. So contained in these medallions are likely powers that sages are given associated to whatever aspect of existence they represent. For instance, Sarai is the Sage of Forest, Darunia the Sage of Fire, Rudo the Sage of Water, Impa the Sage of Shadow, Naburu the Sage of Spirit. And their symbols correlate with that. Zelda Encyclopedia says that each of the sages in Ocarina of Time and Twilight Princess, with the exception of Princess Zelda, their leader, is associated with a crest that shows their particular element. Forest, fire, water, spirit, shadow, or light. I left out light. Raru is the Sage of Light. And this can be further backed by early development of Ocarina of Time. It's been recently found that during early stages of development, there was going to be a mechanic where Link could actually use spells. And it's theorized that there were actually going to be six spells. A spell for fire, a spell for ice, a spell for wind, light, shadow, spirit. These ideas were scrapped or reduced into the three spells that Link can actually use in the game, Din's Fire, Ferrari's Wind, and Nehru's Love. But a lot of people speculate that these spells would have actually been a, something the sages bestowed on Link through their use of their medallions. So if this is true in the lore, even if it was scrapped from the story, then this gives sages power based on an aspect of creation that they represent. So the sages have powers based on whatever element they represent, but together they have the divine power to open the doors to the sacred realm and seal evil within it. The sages also take responsibility for protecting that door to the sacred realm. And it was likely in this motivation that Rauru built the Temple of Time, which is the physical gate to the sacred realm. But then on the sacred realm side, there was the Temple of Light. And the Temple of Light is a really interesting lore piece in Ocarina of Time because we don't know a lot about it. All we know is that Link wakes up seven years in the future, meeting Raru, and they're in this ethereal chamber known as the Chamber of Sages. Raru tells Link that the Chamber of the Sages is within the Temple of Light, within the sacred realm that houses the Triforce. So, there's speculation. Is the Temple of Light the Sky Keep? Was the Temple of Light built long before the Sages? Or did the sages build the Temple of Light and position the Triforce within it? I don't know the answer to that, but if you guys have thoughts or comments, let us know. It's also interesting to me that the sages can open the sacred realm from the inside. Because we know that the Master Sword Axe is the key to the door, so if you remove the Master Sword, then the doors to the sacred realm will open. But at the final cutscene when Ganon is banished to the sacred realm, the sages open the doors from the inside, so that could likely be their power. Maybe the power they have in the physical realm is the power contained within their medallions that corresponds with the elements they represent, but their power in the sacred realm is to open the doors and perform more mystical kinds of magic. So, those are some of the basic lore elements that we can see in Ocarina of Time that actually drive the main story. There's other lore elements for sure. I mean, there's the temples themselves and wondering, well, what is the significance and tradition behind the temples? But the Shadow Temple and the Sheikah in general are a whole nother branch of lore from Ocarina of Time that's pretty incredible to get into. So I'll tell you what I know from Ocarina of Time because it's a good place to start, even though I definitely recommend reading Zelda Encyclopedia. At one point in the journey, Link returns to Kakariko Village, which he learned was Impa's hometown 
and you have to travel through it to get to Death Mountain, but Link returns after having freed the Zoras from the curse of Lake Hylia, and he finds that the village is on fire. It's under attack by this nameless, invisible beast. So Sheik is there to help the villagers, and he and Link face off against the beast and lose. So Link is knocked unconscious and is awakened later to Sheik explain to him that the beast came out of the well. Now, if you get around to talking to the villagers, which are actually refugees from Castletown, you'll find this old man in blue, and he's pacing around near Impa's house. And if you get talking to him, he talks about this man who used to live in the village, and this man was responsible for heinous crimes. And this man was said to have an eye of truth. He was able to see the truth. He then leaves by saying that the man's house was once built above the well. Anyone who knows what is beneath the well knows that there was some serious crap going down in there. We've got torture chambers, holding cells, plus just the general horror of that place, such as the dead hand. So it's speculated that this man actually used the basement in the well for his interrogation. And then, considering that the Shadow Temple is paralleled in design and apparent function to the well, it's suspected that the entire Sheikah tribe was involved in some kind of inquisition, likely on behalf of the royal family. Well, it's further speculated that the man whose house was built above the well and was conducting this inquisition was beheaded and cursed, and he became the beast Bongo Bongo that you have to defeat in the Shadow Temple. So already you've got this very compelling mystery behind the Sheikah tribe. Considering the fact that the Shadow Temple even explicitly tells you that here lies the bloody history of Hyrule, you begin to wonder how much the royal family was willing to dirty their hands in order to bring about peace, considering we knew that before the era of the Hero of Time, Hyrule was engaged in a great war, a unification war. So, the Sheikah bring a lot of intrigue for that reason, especially considering that they had something like the Lens of Truth. Going back a little bit, it is actually suspected by some of these people who have gotten into the codes of the game, it's suspected that if the medallions had actually been spells granted to Link, then the shadow spell would have granted Link invisibility. So kind of like the opposite of the lens of truth. The lens of truth would help you see through fake walls or things that are actually invisible. Well, the shadow spell would have actually made you invisible. So I think that would have been cool. But anyway... Throughout the history of the Roa family, there was skeletons in the closet. The closet being the Shadow Temple, considering how many freaking skeletons are buried down there. What Encyclopedia does have to say is that the existence of the Sheikah is typically a secret to all but members of the Roa family and those close to them. So you really do have this tribe of skilled, mysterious assassins that can do your dirty deeds, which we seem to find within Ocarina of Time. <laughs> Even better, we have some confirmation into some of these Inquisition theories because if you look at the footnote of image 1 on page 44 about the Sheikah tribe, it says explicitly that the Shadow Temple, located in the Kakariko village graveyard, is a place where the Sheikah, entrusted with the lives of Hyrule's royal family, have historically taken enemies of the royal family to be interrogated or worse. Because it stands as a symbol of Hyrule's dark history, it is taboo for the royal family to speak of this temple and its horrific purpose. So, chew on that a little bit. 
But there's this idea of mystery behind the Sheikah tribe and what their function was and their means about obtaining their objective. And this lore actually extends into a lot of other games because in Twilight Princess, we also have a hidden village where the Sheikah tribe likely inhabited and we have their surviving member Impaz with the secret of how to ascend into the heavens and find the city of the Uka. And then... Even in Skyward Sword, you have the first Impa, who is a messenger of the goddess Hylia, tasked with protecting Zelda and helping her obtain her memories and reach her destiny as the reincarnated Hylia. So the Sheikah are kind of ambiguous, but they are deep in the lore of Zelda because they're involved in so many stories and so many traditions of the royal family of Hyrule. The Temple of Time as an item of lore is really fascinating, especially when it keeps cropping up. I remember when Twilight Princess came out, and it was a really exciting game because of its high graphics and more realistic design, but it was even more exciting to see how many Easter eggs and references back to Ocarina of Time that it had. So to see the Master Sword rendered in those graphics was pretty awe-inspiring, but to then use it later in the game to actually enter the Temple of Time as we knew it in Ocarina of Time, it blew my mind. I remember walking through that gate and you pass through this portal with this weird distortion happening in the background. All of a sudden you step through and the Temple of Time that was in ruins is now rebuilt with the original Ocarina of Time music theme for Temple of Time playing in the background and realizing, oh my word, we are back in the Ocarina of Time temple. So the Temple of Time has been a fascinating piece of lore because it plays a pivotal role in every story that it's a part of. I mean, Ocarina of Time is obvious. It's the housing place of the Master Sword. It's really where the conflict takes off because once you open the door of time, Ganondorf obtains the Triforce of Power and really ruins your life. But in Twilight Princess, it's significant because you obtain the Dominion Rod, which helps you get into the skies and reunite the Hylians and the Uka tribe. Skyward Sword also has a Temple of Time, which isn't a temple built like the one Rauru constructed, but it's an important temple because the Gate of Time is found within its walls. The Gate of Time is what allowed Zelda and Impa to pass back thousands of years to a time when Demise had recently been sealed and the Triforce had been cast into the air. And it's only after this gate is destroyed that you have to seek out another one in the Temple of Hylia. But regardless, there's a Temple of Time that bears the crest of the royal family sitting in the abandoned desert in Hyrule in Skyward Sword. Zelda Encyclopedia has some good insights, such as the Temple of Time having been built on the ancient grounds of the Sealed Temple, but it basically talks about how the Temple of Time crops up in Skyward Sword, Ocarina of Time, and Twilight Princess. So, definitely worth a read. It's got some good tidbits in there. And of course, you can't have a lore cast about Ocarina of Time if you don't talk about the timeline split. That is easily one of the most discussed and explored lore aspects of Ocarina of Time ever since it was created because it was clear to fans pretty early on, but it also has some serious implications for the rest of the series. 
So, let me explain. In the last episode with Timmy, I talked about how irked I am at the fact that at the end of the game, Zelda sends Link back in time to reclaim his childhood. It always hurt me so deeply because I shipped those two. I wanted them to create the new Hyrule together, but instead she feels guilty that he was sealed away in the Temple of Light for so long and she wants to give those years back. Now, whether she didn't understand the consequences or was acting as the goddess Hylia, who recognized that there was a greater purpose behind sending Link back, there were major repercussions of sending him back in time. Because Zelda had to continue to exist in her timeline. But Link is now 11 years old again, where Zelda is young, Ganondorf hasn't taken the Triforce, the Kingdom of Hyrule is still strong, so we have two timelines. She actually creates a branch. Now, Hyrule Historia introduced the defeated timeline, where Link actually loses the battle against Ganon and he obtains the full Triforce and the sages have to lock him in the sacred realm. This is a little bit controversial, at least in my family, because this isn't a branching timeline. This is simply an alternate reality. It's an alternate ending. What Zelda did by the laws of time-space physics is they both have to continue to exist, so you have two timelines existing in parallel. But the defeated timeline is simply an alternate reality. So I'm not a huge fan of it, but the truth is there's some great games that lie along that branch. But here I'm focusing on the timeline split, where you have Zelda as an adult in what's called the adult timeline, and you have Link, who's now a child, back in the child timeline. And one of the biggest repercussions that comes of this timeline split is the Triforce. Because Link, as a fully realized hero of time, is the wielder of the Triforce of Courage. So when he travels back in time, he is still the most worthy person to hold the Triforce of Courage. And because he wields the Triforce, it's almost as if he had stepped into the Sacred Realm and put his hand on it. So there's a problem with this, though. Link is imbalanced just as imbalanced as Ganondorf is because Link defeats Ganon with courage and he develops his courage throughout his quest to awaken the sages. So he is dominantly courageous and he's not so dominant in wisdom and power. And so as a result of this, the Triforce splits again because in this timeline, it's still one complete Triforce. It was never split up because Ganondorf never touched it. But because Link is now wielding it and basically metaphysically touching it, it splits because he's not worthy to wield the entire Triforce. So inadvertently, the Triforce splits and is given to the exact same three people, Link, Zelda, and Ganondorf. And this gets a little hairy when they try and execute Ganondorf, when the sages try and execute him because now he has the Triforce of power by accident and he uses it. So it creates some conflict that is the basis of Twilight Princess. Now in Zelda's timeline, the Triforce of Courage now is without a wielder because Link disappears. And so it's just hanging out there and because of that, it fractures into eight pieces which Zelda recovers and the royal family scatter them across Hyrule to be found by the Hero of the Winds in the Wind Waker. So it gets really interesting, this timeline theory. We have, we have two alternate realities, and now we have a hero who is stuck in a childhood timeline and has to reckon with that. But as Timmy and I talked about in the last episode, it was necessary for Link's development to become the master of two worlds 
and learn how to incorporate himself into the ordinary world from which he came. But it gets really awesome from a lore perspective because there's all kinds of discussion and questions that come about because of the split timeline. But I think that Ocarina of Time is a prime example of how lore drives a story because for a lot of people who aren't into the nitty-gritty nerdy stuff in a fandom, what they want is a really compelling story. And lore is still very important because a viewer or a reader or a listener of any story has to believe in the story for it to impact them. Us as fans, whether we were children or adults, when we encountered the series, there had to be a moment where we were playing the games and we bought in. And we said, yeah, I can get behind this. I want to believe in this. So for me as a child, I wanted to be Link for Halloween because I believed in Link. I believed that I could be Link, even if it was just through my imagination. I believed that I could walk through Hyrule myself. And in order to do that, there has to be a good foundation of lore to make this world believable. We have to believe that there is some kind of powerful truth behind what we are seeing on the screen or on the page. So Harry Potter, for example, we all love the idea that you could go take a wand like a stick of wood and make sparks shoot out of it or make it lift objects because that would be something that we would love to use in our regular everyday lives, but it would also be a way to enhance the world around us. And that's what these fantasy stories are trying to do. They tell a story that enhances our lives. And so I think Legend of Zelda has a good lore structure because it's very straightforward, especially in Ocarina of Time. But then there are those of us who want to get deeper into the lore. We want to further immerse ourselves into this world and understand how it ticks. And Legend of Zelda has a lot of that. There's so much opportunity to dive into the lore even deeper. Lore means a lot to me because, like I said, these stories are meant to enhance our lives. And I grew my imagination like crazy playing these Zelda games because of how relatable I could find Link. That's where the make-believe comes in. I merged my life and Link's life and tried to put myself in his shoes Lore also has helped me create my own stories. I love daydreaming and stretching my imagination and creating stories and creating characters that go through their own world and experience fantastic elements like Jedi-like powers or experience magic like Harry Potter or become heroes like Link. And the lore of The Legend of Zelda, how everything ties together and functions, has helped me to create more realistic stories that leave an impression on me and that I hope can leave an impression on others. So as we wrap up today, our first lore cast, I first want to thank you all for being here. For a lot of people, lore is kind of heavy. It's a little too deep for a lot of the casual gamers. So if you're one of those casual players that just loves the story of Zelda and loves the characters and doesn't really want to get into the deep nitty-gritty, can't keep track of it all, thanks for sticking with us. I hope what I explained made the lore a little less daunting. And for those who are very experienced in the lore like me, I hope this wasn't too simple. I hope it gave you something to think about as you're playing through these games the next time around. Just remember, it's dangerous to go alone. So take us. See you guys next time.